Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 223. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to discuss 1986's Mr. Boogity as we wrap up WTF What the February. 1986 was a good year, but we're going to determine if this was one of the better things to come from it. Yeah, it was a Disney Sunday movie that was put to screen, originally developed as a television pilot, and they decided to run as a TV film instead. This was one that, as a day one Disney Plus subscriber, I saw it, it caught my attention, but we were looking for the right opportunity to sit and discuss it. I think that it's easy to do for Halloween, but I'm kind of glad for a multitude of reasons that we held out and did it for a What the February. Yeah, this was one of the titles that we were considering when we decided to do What the February again. This was definitely a contender. Uh, and I'm glad that we had it on our list because uh, it was also recommended to us by Disney's Broke Princesses, a What the February review. You can go follow Heather at Disney Broke Princess on Instagram. Um, I didn't want her to take the heat if it was as bad as we anticipated. <laughs> so I'm glad that we were already kicking this idea around. All right. Well, does it deserve a spot in What the February? Did we un earth a gem that on top of many other things is what we are here to discuss today this episode is sponsored by fierce fox co designers of handmade silk screen shirts fierce fox has a t-shirt tank top hoodie or crew neck for every fandom so whether it's the movies or theme parks princesses or villains the mcu or star wars everyone will find something they love the designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles such as sketchbook and concert tees listeners of monoreal radio can get a 20 percent discount using the code monoreal at checkout visit fiercefoxdesignco.com to check out all of the collections the davis family moves to a fixer-upper home in lucifer falls new england to open a gag city franchise basically it's it's a little toy store that sells gag items and they would be the only one within a hundred miles they meet their mysterious realtor slash historical society member neil witherspoon who warns them to leave the home at it, uh, as it has been uh, something plagued with a tragic history, but the family decides to stay anyway. The family, however, starts to be haunted by the mysterious Mr. Boogity, the Boogity Man, as Witherspoon had called him, mainly their daughter Jennifer. When she and her brothers Corwin and Ari track down Mr. Witherspoon, for information, he tells them that 300 years prior, a pilgrim named William Hanover, a killjoy whom the town disliked for his affinity for scaring children, uh, took a liking to the widow Marion, who in turn rejected a wedding proposal from him. Obsessed with the widow, he sold his so uh, soul to the devil for a magic cloak to get the widow. He also kidnapped her ill son and blew up his home while trying to cast a spell, killing himself, Marion, and her son, Jonathan. 
The Davis home has been built on the site and is now haunted. Their parents refuse to believe the story until the boogity man pays them a quick visit, although their father is hesitant to leave. Marion pays a visit to their mother and tells her that she can't enter the home as Mr. Boogity's magic keeps her away from her son and out of the home. Her son is trapped in the basement of the house. Meanwhile, Corwin and Ari meet Jonathan, who also warns of the evil spirit. Mr. Boogity arrives and casts spells on the family, who eventually suck him into a shop vac, trapping him and ending his curse. Um, okay, lots going on here. Lots to say. There is, but before we get into that, I actually want to start with a question that has sort of been plaguing me. Okay. Is Boogeyman, is that not public domain? Is that why it's Boogity Man? Could they not say it? I'm not sure that it's not public domain. I think that they're just, I think they tried to create their own character that they could then license and trademark. Because if this thing blew up, they probably can't license and trademark and copyright Boogeyman. But Boogity Man, they could. So if this turned into sequels, which it did turn into one sequel, or toys or television shows and Halloween costumes, they can copyright it and make money off of it. I would love to live in a world where there was a Mr. Boogity action figure. So would I. Let's talk about what's going on here. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, and I just want to put this out of the way now, we're going to talk about the cast in a few minutes here. The opening credits, when we sat and watched this movie for the first time, I said, oh my God, there are so many names. Very surprising. Now, most of them were not necessarily established stars at the time, but this is where, when you look back on people that got a start in a short film in a Disney Sunday movie, and they later went on to do bigger and better things, it's not always a surprise, right? The fact that you got at least four names that went on to be, at least for their time, considerable stars, plus you add John Astin to it, who was a legend in his own right at the time, that I was kind of taken aback with how many names we saw through the opening credits. This is almost like how Ed Wood would put together a film. Like he would get B Bella Lugosi in it. Right. And then everyone else was essentially an unknown. And then, you know, as it became a cult classic, things would catch on more and more. And then the talent blows up. I love the introduction to this house, though. It's on the nose. It's a dark and stormy night, right? But as soon as they pull up to the house, it is like the haunted house of haunted houses. It's a caricature of every haunted house that you've ever seen. And the father is in love with the fact that this is the house that they... It looks like it should be condemned. Fixer Upper says the least. But I love the introduction to this set. I have tried extensively to find out what house this is. So if anyone knows... I would love for you to either DM us or email us monorealradio at gmail.com and let me know because it was sort of recognizable and I wasn't sure if it was Disney 
back lot until we got later on into the film and I recognized a lot of the Warner Brothers set, which we're definitely going to talk about. But my first thought was that it it might be the Halloween house. Um, and then I compared them and it wasn't. Um, I think probably, if anything, I'm recognizing it from Gilmore Girls. And obviously it's just this predated Gilmore Girls and Gilmore Girls would have been dressed very differently. Um, but I'm still not sure. Most of most of what Google returns in the search is it's in Lucifer Falls, which is obviously not the case. It's it's not a real place. I hate um, to spoil it. But yeah, my best guess is that it was on the Disney lot and it it no longer exists. We get introduced to the idea that these characters are running this Gag City franchise, this little gag store, right? Which would not exist nowadays because people would just buy cheap gags either on Amazon or they'd get them at like Spencer's or Hot Topic or whatever, right? I don't know about that. I think there's still some magic shops around. There's one in Cocoa Beach. Well, there are magic shops. This is just a straight gag but store. I'm sa- yeah, I feel like if you were to find anything like this now, you'd get it in a, ma- a magic shop. Like if you ever needed a whoopee cushion, right. you're probably more likely to find it in a magic shop nowadays. Do the gags get old? Immediately. Be- right? Immediately less. Yes for me. All right. So it's not just me. Like when you meet the kids in the very beginning and they're having this like little odd picnic on the side of the road where it looks like it's completely unsafe to have a picnic while they're driving (laughs) to this new home. Like they have, you know, the glasses on with the fake nose, the fake mustache, the dad's wearing it. They all have their gag uh, city jackets. Yeah. um, No. um, Yeah. No, that was Groucho, not Harpo. Yeah. So, like, they're all wearing their Gag City jackets. They have the Gag City van. Like, we get it, right? The whole family, except for Jennifer, buys into it. Mom, dad, the two boys, everybody's all into the gags, except Jennifer. That's all we needed to see. But every which way they turn, there's another gag. Dad's got a hand buzzer. He's got rubber eggs for breakfast. They have fake, fake vomit. vomit. Like, yeah. It is just one thing after another after another. And it just seems like they're trying to like shoehorn it in as if we don't understand enough that this is what the family does for a living. I feel like it wouldn't be so much of an issue if the character setup wasn't so one dimensional. Like... Obviously, the two boys are very much into it, and it seems like them and dad are always teaming up to get a rise out of Jennifer. Um, And that's fine that they're establishing that as the family dynamic, but you don't get much more than that. Like, mom doesn't weigh in one way or the other. Like, she sort of laughs at the jokes, and also at the same time, she seems over it herself. That character completely falls flat throughout the rest of the film. I know we're going to break down the characters a little bit more later, but she really doesn't offer anything and doesn't take a stance on either side here. Um, So I feel like, you know, obviously in in a film for a Sunday night movie with a 46-minute runtime, you're not going to get very deep characters, but we just needed a little bit more because... As the audience, it's getting old for us and we don't have anything really to latch on to 
here to to redeem these characters. And we're five minutes into the movie. Yes. Okay. Um, like, I don't know at this point if I'm rooting for this family to survive Mr. Boogity or hope that he gets them because they're not doing anything to really make me care. Yeah, it's true. So we get John Aston's character, Witherspoon, immediately tells them, you shouldn't be in this house. You need to leave. I mean, we see the house and we look around and we're like, well, nobody should be in this house. And forget the haunted aspect. You purchased this as a fixer upper. Like they do make a big deal of saying it is a fixer upper. But as people who just bought a home, <laughs> like, did you not look at it before you bought it? And there's it's their broken f- windows. There could have been animals in there. There could have been anything in there. And it's their first house. They say this is our first ever home. See, that I would have liked to explore a little bit more. Is is your gag shop not doing so well? Is that why you branched out on your own? Like, that I actually found interesting. Right, or did you put all of your money into opening up a chain? Exactly. And that's why you haven't owned a home, and that's why you're buying this, this home that is, you know, it, it, it's one nail falling out from being a complete, demolition job yeah but give me some stakes here that would have been great but you get john Aston. he warns them and dad's like thanks don't ever change literally is what he says to him and they're like where are we gonna plug in the tv you know it's it's sort of just you know you it's 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 very 80s clueless parents right it is what you saw in so many 80s films and for its time it worked but immediately it does date the film a lot what somehow doesn't feel dated though is witherspoon's costume i love the introduction here where he's in silhouette i know it's supposed to be a misdirect that jennifer's seeing mr bogarty and it's not and it turns out he's a real person cuz when he when he approaches uh carlton I thought Carlton's hand was going to pass right through him because he's trying to do the buzzer joke, but it he actually reacts to it. So I thought that was a great reveal that this is, you know, an actual member of the town. Why he's in the home that you just bought in the darkness to greet you instead of waiting for you outside is beyond me. But um, for all the hokiness and all of the questions and things that didn't make sense, I just love the the aesthetic of the scene how he's revealed and this costume that is borderline cheap halloween costume but like it's actually pretty decent i just love that when the lights turn on it's gomez it is the original gomez adams um so off the rip i think that they do a good job of setting the story up it's just that other than the kids which I think ultimately the kids are the only characters that you really supposed to care about them and Witherspoon and Mr. Boogity. I don't think you're supposed to fall in love with the parents. Again, it's an eighties made for TV movie. You said it before. It's going to be a lot of one dimensional characters because of the runtime. They're not going to waste a lot of time fleshing things out. Um, But with all of that being said, I think they do a fairly good job of setting us up and getting us into the juice of the story. 
What I also appreciate, too, is that they didn't do the trope of you just move to a new town and it's your first day of school and then the kids leave and then things start getting a little spooky, but the parents sort of just brush it off and then the kids come home and they're terrorized that night. I like that we got this film almost playing out in real time of like a 24 hour span of their first night in the house. I like the fact too that, and obviously like they're trying to play up on poltergeist, right? The whole idea that not that it's the burial ground, but the fact that every home that gets built on this property has a problem. So like when you think about it, it's suburbia, right? Like really like wonder bread suburbia. So it's playing up on, you know, it's playing up on the idea of gremlins. It's playing up on poltergeist, you know, things that were popular in pop culture at the time. And Disney is just trying to find a way to make it a family friendly film. Um, I love the setting. I think the setting works. And to me, because those other films are, I believe those other films are timeless. That doesn't date the film at all either. I agree. I think that's also because of the choice they made. Um, I mean, obviously, it's the 80s. You're not going to get like a ton of CGI, um, but they went for real practical effects here. Yes. And because any of the hauntings were sort of Mary Poppins-esque, where you have the kitchen cupboards opening and closing, uh, you have things just sort of moving around very subtly, Um it, it all just really works. And it looks good. Yeah. This is the thing, right? Like, if they made Mr. Boogity today, all of that would be CGI, and it would look horrific. Yeah. But for a movie that's, God help you and I, closing in on 40, um, and it was kind of cheaply made, this just goes to show how good practical effects look because you're actually using the set. You're not computer generating things that aren't really there. This is one of my favorite types of of films where it is so low budget, you have to get creative. Yeah. So now, Boogity starts to haunt Jennifer. Uh, I can't imagine that you took kindly to the there's no place like home. How'd you know? Because when they said it in the film, you let out a noise that I cannot replicate. (laughs) No, leave the Wizard of Oz out of this, please. I also know how you feel about movies that quote other movies in their movies. Well, I feel like the director, Oz Scott, was trying to pay homage to a couple of other classic films that I caught. Like there's the one long shot of the hallway that is obviously a nod to The Shining. When we first see the door, the green door. And then uh, there was another moment besides the Wizard of Oz quote, um, and I can't remember what it was off the top of my head, that that was a nod to another another big horror film. But I, I, as we were watching it, I was like, oh, that's clearly supposed to... It it was like the... Oh, no, you know what it is? Um, There's a moment where they're standing in the kitchen and they frame Carlton through uh, Eloise's arm like Mrs. Robinson's leg. Yes. And I was like, I think that's supposed to be a wink and a nod to The Graduate, but clearly much more PG. Yeah, and, and it's kind of like odd that they would want to like 
Cap Tip the Graduate. Like, other horror films, I get. The Graduate just seems like an odd choice from Mr. Boogity. I mean, yes and no. If it's a director that just loves movies, of course they're going to do that. I guess. Um, but let's move on. So, Boogity, we haven't seen him yet, right? At all. Yeah, at this point, it's still kind of the Jaws thing. It's the fear of the unknown when you don't actually see the monster. So they go find, this being the kids, they go find Witherspoon, who is inside of Luke's Diner. Yeah, the Historical Society, or as you called out immediately, Luke's Diner. Well, here's the thing. Just from watching How I Met Your Mother and Gilmore Girls, I'm usually able to pick the Warner Brothers set out of anything um but also both times i've been to la i've done the tour so once you've walked through it and you can see everything when it's stripped down and not dressed for a show um it's pretty easy to spot when you are watching it but what was remarkable to me more than anything else i think anybody could pick up that this was luke steiner because the curtains that go halfway up the window are exactly the same the way they have it in this set with the the historical society. I don't know if that's a conscious choice they're making so you can't see the rest of the background and you're blocking out whatever else is going on if they're shooting two things at the same time because this building is on the corner. Um, Or or maybe just it's what works and it makes it look good. Maybe it's for lighting. I don't know. But the curtains are exactly the same. It it's an odd coincidence. I wonder if that just has to do with like natural sunlight or if that's where they have lights, like production lights that they're trying to hide. It it's just yeah. odd that they would have these half curtains in both. I mean, and it's not like it's not like they were shooting both at the same time. Gilmore Girls was 15 years after this movie came out. Yeah, I mean it it is odd, though. I mean, I don't know that you would have to light the outside so much because the inside would have a lighting grid. I don't know. I'm str- This is your. This is your business, <laughs> not mine. Um, all right, let's talk about the actual backstory of Mister Boogity. Other than the fact that Witherspoon pulls out a child's pop-up book to tell the story, which seems a bit strange. I kind of like the backstory of Boogity. I like that we're going back to colonial times. I like the fact that when we do see it play out in, you know, uh, in live action, that it's set against the backdrop of the pop-up book. Like, I thought that was really cool. Yes. But let's just call out the most obvious thing. Boogity's selling his soul to the devil to get a magic cloak. I totally make sense. He's doing it because he wants power over the town and he wants the widow Marion. If he's got this magic cloak, he doesn't need to kidnap her sick child. <laughs> I like the fact that they put that added layer on because Boogity is he's kind of evil enough because he gets his jollies off of scaring children. And he doesn't care what the town thinks of him. But the fact that he would take a child who was sick. Remember, if you got a cold in colonial times, you were gone, right? So he he intentionally takes this kid knowing that there's a chance the child is going to die. He basically takes the child hostage 
to force the mother to him. He doesn't need to do that if he's got the cloak. I like the added layer of, like, pure concentrated evil, but it's just not necessary. I mean, you do have to create a big bad that is living up to the hype of haunting this house. Right. So I don't know that it's not necessary. Um, I am glad that you said that, though, about how dangerous an illness was back in colonial times because the whole time I'm watching this I'm thinking this kid has the sniffles and then when you did the plot you said he was ill and I'm like it sounds like he's got pneumonia or like you know pick an older you know one Dysentery of those exactly or that something that like on wiped out entire populations yellow fever whatever it is I'm like this kid is sneezing it's it's not like he's lying on his deathbed, but you're right, you know, especially they are in New England. They had very cold winters. You're right. It they they didn't lean into that enough. They make him sneeze, but like you could have really milked this illness and, and made him seem more sick. And that's why, you know, his mother you know, she has unfinished business because she's gotta take care of him. Yeah, I mean, they were middle aged to twenty seven, you yeah. know, back in those times. <laughs> Um, but no, I do agree. Even though they could have leaned into this sickness a little bit harder, I actually really like this whole layered B story that they gave it. And I love everything about this scene. Again, you're working with a small budget, so they really use that to their strength here with the pop-up book. Because at first it kind of felt out of place, but then once you saw that they still had the entire flashback just set up against a white psych in the background and... You know, it was just very minimal. I thought that was all working here. The only thing that didn't work for me is that the widow Marion sort of seemed interested in Mr. Bogarty. Yeah. When she was like, oh, he can't be all that bad. You know, she's a single mother. I get it. Good on her. But then he has to sell his soul to get someone that was already sort of attracted to him. Yeah, and she rejects his wedding proposal. Yes, uh, for, like, uh, why? Yeah, like, we don't get a reason as to why. Like, just 10 more seconds of screen time where she doesn't like the fact that he continues to scare children and he refuses to give that up in spite of the fact that he would basically be adopting Jonathan along with marrying Marion right that's all we needed to see because you're right it goes from I kind of like him he's not that bad to never like literally in about five or six seconds right with no reasoning for it so we needed something else there other than other people telling her eh, probably not a great idea because that's basically all that we got right the most shocking thing, though, of that scene is that we straight up see the devil. That looks like a cheap Halloween costume. But I'm just surprised that they went there in a Disney film, especially one that's made for television on a, you know, for a Sunday night movie. Well, I think that's why it looks like a cheap Halloween costume. Right. It can't be scary, scary, but I'm surprised that they actually just showed it. As, as much of a caricature as it is. Creativity at its finest. Creating new characters and new stories. What a concept. <laughs> Which Disney somehow has gotten away from because everything needs to be a trilogy that, that you can make 
four prequels off of. Anyway, moving on. We get more great practical effects because now you're st- now that we've been introduced to the character Boogity, we're still not seeing him, but we're watching him haunt the house and haunt the family more and more and more. My only thing is that mom and dad brushing it off in the very beginning makes sense, right? Because they've been in the house for literally three minutes. Right. Now, mom and dad... Now, to dad, everything's still a gag. Mm-hmm. Everything's still a joke. I actually like that at first, when he's not believing what he's being told because he thinks that it's Witherspoon or one of the kids or somebody else in the town like trying to scare them, and they're using these gag props that he wants to sell in his store. All of this makes sense for the character. My problem becomes when Boogity actually starts to haunt the family and everybody wants to leave and dad's like, well, we'll just sleep in front of the fireplace instead. My bigger issue with this whole thing is that the kids are coming from home from the historical society and they're trying to explain what happened. So you know that dad makes a joke out of everything. That has been more than established. But I don't know if I take a bigger issue with him pelting his kids with balls or mom just standing by and watching this happen with the most horrific laugh of all time well that bothered me the first time that we saw it but the second time I think that's also boogity laughing with her uh, you might because be right. there is a transition like she does do that really bad horse laugh the first couple of times but the last time she laughs you you don't see her face moving and you still hear it. So I think it's supposed to be... They don't do it very well, but it's supposed to transition to Boogity's laugh taking over. Um, I fully expected this trope of the kids getting brushed off and the dad just making a joke out of it. But sure. this just drags on way too long. And you're hitting them with balls. Like, what? this is just too much. Um, but there is a bit of a payoff now once you get the parents on board and there's this big haunting where the organ that's mysteriously left in this house in this fixer upper starts playing. I love that Carlton has the prop dummy. Um, And again, they do this really well. It's clearly, um, you know, it just looks like a stuffed sack of potatoes, but in the shape of a mummy. So he leaves it on one of the boxes. They cut away. And then when they come back to the haunting, it's clearly a person that's now dancing as this mummy. It's great. It's it's really well done. Uh, and I really like the movement. For sure. And I like that they continue the story building because then later, mom can't sleep. She's hungry. She goes to make herself a sandwich. I thought it was because of Carlton's ghost stories scaring her and keeping her up because... Of course the kids are terrified, so you're having this sleepover in front of the fireplace. What better way to calm them down than to tell other ghost stories? But she goes to make her sandwich. She's sitting in the kitchen, and she sees... I I don't remember if she hears a noise or if she sees a glow. I think it was a little bit of both. I think... um she hears the noise because then she goes, who's tapping on my door or something? Yes. Some, something awful like that. Yeah. Rap, rap, rapping on my chamber door. So <laughs> she goes outside and the Widow Marion is out there. And the Widow Marion then explains to her that because of Boogity's curse, she cannot enter the home. And mom's like, 
it's okay. Come inside. Do you want a cup of coffee? And she's like, I can't enter your home. Is there something about coffee that you don't like? It's just like the the dialogue is so bad and it makes no sense. And it makes mom out to be a just like a dunce of a character. What gets lost here is that you get really good story and world building where the Marion character is explaining like, because of his magic, I cannot enter your home because that would reunite me with my son who's trapped in the house with Boogity. So I can't come in. But do you want a sandwich instead? <laughs> that, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, mom, mom has these moments where she's like a really good matriarch for the family. Mm-hmm. And then other times where it seems like she suffered a concussion. It, <laughs> like it just, it's so frustrating that it makes no sense. Yeah, they really did a disservice to this character, especially in this scene. I completely agree. Uh, my big issue is that Eloise is so nice. Yes. Before she even knows who Marion is. First of all, there is like no transition between you're being haunted by Boogity and your whole family is scared. She's up by herself. She's not even afraid to be, you know, to like wander away from the family. And then once you start hearing the noises, her reaction is who's knock knocking at my door and not, oh, is this Boogity coming back after what you just saw him do? You know, there's no afraid that she's good that that he's going to torture the family or torture her now that she's veered off on her own. But my biggest issue with it is that because Carlton was yucking it up and making a joke out of everything, the kids never got to explain what they learned. So she doesn't even know who Marion is. Right. She doesn't know the name. She doesn't know that she's separated from her son. And yet. She's just being nice to a ghost that she has just seen with no context of who she is. And then she really doesn't have a reason to know. It The whole it's, thing yeah. is just terrible, terrible, terrible screenwriting. It is. And, and it's a shame because they do so much good in this scene. Especially because now you can have, you know... You can have Eloise be sympathetic towards Marion because it's like, oh, you know, here this man is torturing my children now. Right. And you were actually his victim. Yeah. I can't imagine how how you must feel. And like, you know, you the plot point of you need to get the cloak and separate it from Boogity, um, not just to help Marion, but to defeat him. It totally gets buried in this scene. But you could have had Eloise be the reason of like, all right, everybody up out of bed. We have to lure him out and we have to get this cloak because I don't want to, uh, what happened to Marion to happen to you guys. Yeah. Instead, we get like a really rushed kind of conclusion here. You only see Mr. Boogity for what? Maybe two minutes of screen time. I feel like we needed more time with Mr. Boogity. You don't get a lot of time with him. Especially because when they do decide to go after him, they do spend a lot of time trying to lure him out, especially because you have Ari wander off on his own and Corwin realize. First of all, I don't know how the parents, you know, aren't watching the youngest son. Like a hawk. Exactly. But he's the last one on the stairs. He veers off on his own. and Well, I guess that shouldn't be such a stretch that Eloise would 
you know, not be paying attention because she did the same thing. But Corwin is the only one who notices and he goes after him. That I buy, though, because they have established that these two are very close. Yeah, I like the relationship between the two brothers. That was actually pretty well done. So you don't get a lot of time with your title character. I like the makeup. I like the costume. I wish that we would have just had more time with him because he arrives, he kind of just starts casting spells on the family and it looks like he's finally got them where he wants them. And then he possesses the shop vac that the father had been shooting ping pong balls out of and it starts chasing Ari around. And when it lunges at Ari and Ari moves, Mr. Boogity instead sucks himself into the shop vac that he had possessed, that he had control of the whole time. He had control of it until he didn't, for reasons unknown. It's sort of a lame payoff to what had been, I think, a fairly strong buildup to get to this point. I'm going to disagree on the strong buildup because to me this was some of the worst dialogue in the film. After um, Corwin gets Ari, and I actually do like the Jonathan reveal in the basement that he took yeah. the teddy bear and now uh, Corwin finds Ari wrestling with him and, and Jonathan warns them like, you have to go, he's coming, he's coming. So Corwin and Ari run up from the basement and it's, he's coming, it's coming. And Carlton goes, Who? Who do you think? The guy that you're looking for. The, the, you've yeah. got all your gag props wielded like baseball bats. Who's coming? Are you kidding me? And then in the next line, he goes, this is it. Way to get on board here, jokester. Um, that for me was all pretty terrible and it, it crushed the buildup. Um, but it does sort of redeem itself because I like when he gets Corwin. This is another great sight gag that Corwin is like floating. Uh, I mean, clearly they're obviously cutting whatever he's suspended from out of frame, but it still looks good. Yeah. Um, so now you have him sort of, uh, he's in peril, but he's still helping Ari because the parents are trying to get him down. Jennifer's doing absolutely nothing. Like, God forbid she should try and help her younger brothers, whether it's Corwin or Ari. So I just would have liked if Ari outsmarted Boogity and it wasn't Boogity falling victim to his own trap. Well, the other thing is, as soon as... So it starts with he loses the cloak in the vacuum. That makes sense. He's now separated from the cloak. You've got to get Boogity into something else. So, like, if they grabbed, like, a Dirt Devil or a Dust Buster or something and brought Boogity into it now, like, it's kind of silly and funny, but you now have the cloak in one thing, you have Boogity in the other thing, and they're separated. The minute Boogity goes into the shop vac, he is now reunited with the cloak. So what is stopping him from putting the cloak back on and taking control again? Right. Because they do sort of allude to that because then the um, the prank that Carlton set up that there's like the jack in the box in the shop vac, that is now alive. So it does sort of give you the impression that he was reunited with the cloak. He still has power. But 
there's no rules that were set up that he's going to be trapped in there. And the other thing, well, I was kind of also led to believe before you brought up this point that once the cloak came off, it would defeat Boogity. It wasn't necessarily about separating them. So I was thinking even if the cloak lives on, the man is destroyed. But the thing is, as soon as they both go into the shop vac... Yeah, that idea just, is completely null and void. Yeah, Correct, because he can just take possession of it again. There's, no, there's nothing preventing him from taking possession. That's like if you took the cloak, threw it in a closet, and then took Boogity and threw him in the same closet. Just because you lock the door doesn't mean that he can't get right. the cloak back. He can possess it again and then use his magic to open the door. But it is implied that he's defeated because <clears throat> then you have Marion reunite with Jonathan. Right. So I kind of felt like everything... They should have just left it there. They that the cloak could still exist in the world because they do get that out and, and Boogity's gone. But with all of that being said, do you have anything else to add on the film here before we start talking about the cast and the characters? No. Okay, so let's talk about our stars of the film, starting with Richard Mazur, who plays Carlton Davis. I recognized him immediately from It, from Tim Curry's It. Uh... He plays uh, Stanley in... T- in Tim Curry's It. That's where I knew him from. I knew him from My Girl too. Uh He's Veda's uncle. The mechanic? Yes. So, yeah, that's obviously, he was a bit of a name at the time, but obviously went on to bigger and better things. I like him as an actor. I liked him in the other things that I've seen him in, and I really wanted to like him in this, but he's just not well written. That's the problem. It, it, it's not a fault... I'll say this right now. What I'm going to say about a few of these characters is not at all a fault of the talent. It's a fault of the screenwriting. And I think that there's probably no bigger victim to bad screenwriting than Carlton in this film. I think it's Eloise, but for Carlton, for me, there are absolutely no redeeming qualities he lost me immediately as far as making a joke out of everything because that was a running bit that got stale very, very quickly. Um, Had he taken charge more as far as trying to lure Boogity out and saving his family, maybe like one of his, one of these gags that he set up was what resulted in, in them being able to defeat Boogity that would have redeemed him instead the gag was set up with the shop vac and now it seems like that's what could bring Boogity back in a sequel, you know, because he's still, he's still in there. So had he actually been more of like a strong patriarch and done something to save his family, it would have made all the difference, but it just went from bad to worse as far as him never taking anything seriously and not really having any kind of arc and it's like it 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 almost seems like if you don't care about your family why should i mm-hmm. because he does nothing mimi kennedy plays eloise this is just a character that seems like you splashed her with a bucket of water like mimi kennedy is super talented we loved her in mom 
her comedic timing is incredible and they squandered it. Yeah. Like for all of the reasons that we mentioned earlier, this character is just such a wasted opportunity. I will say that Mimi did the best she could with what she had to work with as far as really, really poor dialogue. But this is just one of those instances where a male writer had no idea how to write a female character. And not only did she fall victim to like every single clueless parent 80s trope, you gave her an entire scene but didn't develop her at all. If anything, you you pushed her backwards. Yes. And there could have been like a really beautiful bond between her and Marion. And it, it would have been such a catalyst with figuring out what they had to do to defeat him. Like go and talk about the ghosts of Buxley Hall, right? Like what you saw with, uh, what was it, Bettina, right? Yes. The way that, and, and she never had to come out and say it, but the way that she admired the girls and their freedom at Buxley Hall. That she never had. They said everything without saying nothing. Yeah. That's really good screenwriting. Mm -hmm. And in this case, a completely wasted opportunity. I mean, to be fair, none of these characters really have full arcs. So in that regard, Eloise didn't get the short end of the stick. But yeah, they, they just wasted such a good opportunity here. John Astin plays Neil Witherspoon, Gomez Adams, right? He puts himself into everything. And I think that when he was here, he was a scene stealer. Yeah. For, then, for the little screen time. Because even when he's doing the pop-up book, it's great. It should surprise nobody. But I think he has more screen time than our title character once all is said and done. Probably. Right? Which, again, is... One of the shortcomings, I think, of the film. I also think, I mean, given his age, too, you probably only got him for a day or two, so you just had to get his scenes out pretty quickly. But that's more... It, it's not problematic with his character. It's more problematic that he had more time than Boogity did. Yeah, well, let's talk about Boogity. Howard Witt plays Boogity. I, I like him in the dual role. I like him as Hanover. I like him as Boogity. I said it before and I'll say it again. I wish we had more time with him. I think he had fun with the character. I think that he's an interesting character. I'll be curious to see down the road eventually when we discuss the sequel to this film, like if we do more with him, if they flesh him out more, because I find him to be really, really interesting. Yeah, I kind of wish that we had seen more of Hanover in Boogity because I feel like all of the hauntings it it really did read more boogeyman than it did an actual person who's torturing people for all eternity yeah um I mean I get you have to make it silly and cartoony so it's not scary but I just we wish we would have seen the performance blended in a little bit more agreed you have Christy Swanson playing Jennifer Davis. She's a trope, right? It's the nobody will believe me um, until it's too late. Not her fault. Very 80s, uh, especially 80s horror. 
I think the thing that was most interesting to me is that she's only 13 years younger, uh, younger than Mimi, at, uh, Mimi Kennedy. She's only 13 years younger. Wow. That, I think, was the most interesting tidbit for me. Well, it could be worse. Nothing is more egregious than what they did to Angela Lansbury in Blue Hawaii. But um, in this case, um, again, nobody really had a full arc. So I'm not going to be too critical about it, but I feel like they just could have done a little bit more as far as her relationship with her brothers. Yeah, let's talk about her brothers. Benjamin Gregory plays Ari. A couple of years later, you know him as Benji Gregory, who plays Brian on ALF. And I think that the, the two characters are very similar, both super endearing. Um, I really like him as a character here. He adds, because he is the youngest, right? So he mm-hmm. kind of adds that childhood innocence that I think that this film really needed. And you, you needed somebody to have a connection to Jonathan because I think that his older brother and older sister other than being sympathetic to a little kid that's separated from his mom, the age gap, I think, is just a miss. So you, I, I like what they did with this character. I agree. I think he really actually grounds this film. Yeah, he's really good. Yeah. As is David Faustino, who later goes on to be Bud Bundy in one of the greatest sitcoms of all time, Married with Children. Um, Don't add him on that. He, it for Sean, it is home improvement and married with children. You you can make a case that the screenwriting and married with children, you'd never get away with it today. But it doesn't mean, again, you want to talk about a star-studded cast. Yeah. Uh, it, they all were just superstars, all of them. Um. And 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 for some of them, it was a jumping off point, right? And they became superstars after. But I thought Faustino was great in this. Uh, I love the relationship between the two brothers. And I think that that was something that was necessary. And I thought that it was an added element um, that made it more interesting because you've got this only child separated from his mother for 300 years. And then of the five people in the family, it's the tightest unit and he's the one that they find, right? They don't necessarily find Boogity. They don't find Marion. They find Jonathan. So I thought that it was really smart that you kind of played up on that as well. Agreed. Um, No, I think it's a great performance. And really, he's one of the better characters in the film because, I mean, he he certainly does more than Carlton, as far as getting his family out of the situation, he's the one who realizes that Ari runs off. He's the one who goes to help him. And when Boogity starts really tormenting them, he's the first one to take a swing at him. Yeah. Um, all right. Final thoughts on Mr. Boogity. I'll let you go first. Um, not the train wreck that I thought it was going to be. I mean, I know we were very critical of it and it definitely deserves that criticism for the screenwriting. Um, But it wasn't nearly as clunky a production as I thought it was going to be. It wasn't as hokey as I thought it was going to be. Um, 
really big props on the special on the uh, practical effects. Yeah. Even the special effects, not that bad. I like the ghost, you know, the the glow wasn't that great, but I like the um uh the effects that they put on Marion and Jonathan to make them look very ghostly. I thought that was all really well done. Um is this my favorite film? No. Uh but it was it was definitely a pleasant surprise. It wasn't awful. Um certainly I think better than um Don't Look Under the Bed. That's what I was expecting and not what I got. I think that at times the movie is a little scary for kids. It, but it never really crosses a line, but there are a few instances where I think like it's kind of close to that line. But with that said, I think this is otherwise a really fun movie. I like the fact that this is an original story with original characters. It's Disney creative at its finest. This, to me, feels like a Sunday night movie that the whole family could get around and enjoy. Funnily enough... uh. It, it aired in April. I don't know why Disney didn't do things like this in Buxley Hall around Halloween because Buxley Hall came out the week of Christmas and this came out <laughs> in April. I'm not sure why they held them and they didn't do them closer to Halloween, but I, I'm not in charge of programming, right? But I like it. Um, I think that it has it has its warts, but I think it's got a lot of things going for it. This is one that I would be interested in watching again. Am I going to insert it into my Halloween rotation every year? I'm not sure. I could I could see myself doing this like in August when the first not so scary starts to happen and it's like okay, I'm kind of ready for Halloween, but I'm not ready to like pumpkin spice everything yet. This is like a like a good like dip your toe in the water. It's a good appetizer. You're not ready for Michael Myers yet, but you want to get a little spooky. I got to I have to get through Labor Day before we get into like Michael Myers and the slasher films and Halloween Town and Scream Scream and for the umpteenth time that I'm going to try and fail Hocus Pocus, right? Like <laughs> you at least have to get through Labor Day. But I'm interested in watching this one again. We want to know what you have to say about Mr. Boogity. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official Monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. Listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout to see everything that Kelly has to offer. It is online at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. News this week, we'll get... Kind of the sad news out of the way first. Bernie Mattinson, he's a Disney animator, was Disney's longest serving employee. 70 year run with the company. Jeez. Passed away 
earlier this week. He worked on Lady and the Tramp, The Jungle Book, The Lion King, The Great Mouse Detective. And, and more recently, he's actually got a credit on Strange World. Yeah. He was due to get his 70-year award with uh. the company in June. He would have been the first uh, employee to ever receive it. I'm sure that he will posthumously get it, of course, though sad that he won't be there to accept the award. But uh, what what a career. To be to be with a company for four years at this point is impressive. The people that the way that people kind of come and go. To have a seventy year run with Walt Disney, you know, with the company, it's you're never going to see anything like that again. No, especially because while he wasn't one of the nine old men, he was that first gen learning from them. Uh, so you have, you know the direct ties to the nine old men and to Walt in that way. And the fact that you stayed through everything to see the transition out of hand-drawn and into computer and able to make that transition and, and want to continue with it um, and embrace the change. That's remarkable in and of itself. But I mean, he truly loved what he did. Any interview that I have seen with him talking about not just the company, but his work, uh, just truly passionate um, for his entire career. It's, it's amazing. And uh, he is a Disney legend. I don't believe that you mentioned that when you were listing out his credits, but he, he certainly deserves that title. Let's talk about the Peter Pan and Wendy trailer that dropped. We didn't see it right away because we were at Wide World of Sports at the spring training game between the Tampa Bay Rays and the New York Yankees. So we waited until we got home because my phone was blowing up when the trailer dropped it. Oh my God, you got to see it. You got to see it. You got to see it. What was your initial reaction to the trailer? Um, I was trying to keep an open mind. Particularly, I was trying to keep hook out of my head because first of all, it's not a Disney movie, but it was our generation's version of a live action Peter Pan. Although it was a sequel, you still get the return to Neverland. You still get Captain Hook. Um, so I was trying desperately to keep that out of my head. And Hook is just so perfect. It was very hard to watch this and not have any sort of semblance of the world that they, they created in Hook. Um, so looking at it for what it is, um, I think it's a really interesting take that it seems like they wash up in Neverland on the beach. Um, I was surprised that Wendy is looking for Michael. It almost seems that that is what brings them there and not that they just decided to go and follow Peter Pan. So I think we're going to have that added element of um, trying to save Michael, which I think will be really interesting. Um, I really like Tinkerbell, that they did the same Julia Roberts effect where they have an actual actress, uh, you know, that they filmed her scene separately, that they didn't just CGI this, you know, little glowy ball and have that service Tinkerbell. Um, 
So I'm really excited and happy about that. My fear was that it was going to be like Jiminy Cricket in Pinocchio. So thank goodness we're not traveling down that road. Um, And I think, you know, the biggest thing that everybody is talking about is our first look at Jude Law as Captain Hook. Uh, I wish we had a little bit more of him in this trailer. I know that it was just supposed to tease us a little bit, but I so wanted more. Um, And I really want a little bit more flamboyance out of this performance, just based on the small sample size we've gotten so far. I'll be honest with you. The only thing that has me excited about this at this point is Jude Law's Captain Hook. I I watched this trailer. Now, first off, it's called Peter Pan and Wendy. It's not called Peter Pan. So I and did not read much into the production or what the story of this was going to be. I just see that it's called Peter Pan and Wendy. I'm assuming that it's a sequel to Peter Pan that they're kind of dipping their toes into the water that was Hook. That is like, okay, we got the original story. Now we're getting this other story about Peter Pan and Wendy. The trailer makes it look like it's just the live-action remake of Peter Pan. So I'm not exactly sure. If that's what they're doing with it, I don't know why you had to add and Wendy. I believe that is what they're doing with it, and I think probably because they're trying to give Wendy a little bit more agency in this one. Like, she's fighting. That's the other thing. I didn't even hit on that. There is um, a little clip of her fighting the pirates. That's all well and good, but is this a sequel or a remake? That's what I'm trying to figure out. I assumed this was a sequel where she takes a larger role, but... The trailer makes it look like it's just a straight remake. I almost feel like that is the direction they're starting to go in when you factor in Peter Pan, where they are pulling more from source material to almost do... It's like a hybrid because it's things that we've never seen before in the animation and you're remaking most of what we know, but then the story takes a completely different direction. I'm also burned... Because I have just gotten so tired of the live-action remakes of Disney films. Pinocchio was unspeakably bad. Um, Well, we did speak about it. And never again. (laughs) Like, the the live-action remakes have just kind of spiraled. I like when they do things like Cruella... I would Mm -hmm. like to see more films like Cruella. I would like to see more films like Maleficent. I think if you look on it, in the past five years, the best live-action remake we've had was Lady and the Tramp. It was really good. But all of that... I mean, Aladdin was good. Lion King was good. But, like, I'm not getting this feeling of like, oh my God, my mind is blown. The way we did with Maleficent, the way we did with Cinderella, the way we did with Cruella. I'd rather deep dive more into villains and deep dive more into the backstory of characters as opposed to just doing these remakes. So I'm cautiously optimistic. I don't think that this looks bad. I think that this just looks like, eh. If this was almost anybody but Jude Law, playing Captain Hook, I probably would just be like, all right, 
and I, it's not getting a theatrical release. Yeah, that was a surprise. It's going, st- well, it's, but this is my point, right? Like, we have said that you can't just keep putting things straight to Disney+, Plus, which it does on April 28th. To me, you want to do, like, your made-for-TV movies, like a boogity. That can go to Disney+. Plus. You want to do television series, like Mandalorian, right? That can go to Disney+. Plus. A movie like this, to me, should get a theatrical release. What this tells me is that Disney has no faith in it. Because Disney knows that they've already beaten the dead horse when it comes to the live-action remakes. No, and when you think about it, I mean, like, this is Neverland that they're going to put to screen. You're going to make us watch that on a TV and not on the big screen? What, and and when you put it in terms of, like, this is a capstone character for them with Tinkerbell. She flies out of the castle every night. Most people associate Tinkerbell more with the parks than they do the film at this point. That's... I mean, for me, I have a Tinkerbell tattoo because it reminds me of Never Grow Up and the overall theme of Peter Pan, which now really boggles my mind that we still haven't reviewed it on Monoreal Radio. But I still associate that more with the park than I do Peter Pan. I know, but it, it's like it's Peter freaking Pan. That's what I'm How saying. Does Peter and you're going to bury this on Disney Plus. <laughs> well, because it tells me they have no faith in it. Because I think that, especially after Mulan, which, yes, came out during the pandemic, the fact that these movies are underperforming in the box office, people talk about having Marvel burnout. At least people are still going to see Marvel movies. Nobody has any interest in going to see these live-action remakes at this point. So it tells me you have no faith in it. It tells me you did it cheap. So you don't want to put it on a movie screen at this point. Now, and, and I'm not reporting on it per se because I haven't seen it from a credible source, but now there's a rumor that there is a Zach Galifianakis-led remake of Lilo and Stitch coming. Stop. I've seen that just, kicking around just, for a just, while. It needs to stop. These live-action remakes have to stop. I don't... The fact that Peter freaking Pan... The ride with never less than an 80-minute wait on any given day. This is not only a capstone film for Disney. This is a capstone film for animation as a whole. This is a capstone film for cinema. This is one of the most timeless characters ever created. Yeah. And you're burying it on Disney Plus instead of giving it a theatrical run? The fish stinks from the head down. It starts with the fact that there is a burnout from live-action remakes. And in spite of themselves, for some reason or the next, Disney is just going to keep walking down this road. And this is why I have a great affinity for films like Mr. Boogity. Is it the best film in the world? Not by any stretch of the imagination. But it's original. It's not Marvel. It doesn't have a ton of source material that you can then spawn into 20 more movies. It's not a live-action remake. It's not Toy Story 5, which we don't need, but we're getting because 
well, crap, we're out of ideas. Toy Story. Give us something original. Or if you're going to do something like Peter Pan, you've got to put everything into it. And it's got to go to movie theaters. I think at this point, instead of this film, I would have almost preferred they do like a six-parter series for Disney Plus. Yes. Because there's so many worlds within Neverland that you can explore between the mermaids, the pirates. Um, I'm sure there's even more source material from the books that that they didn't utilize. I mean, look, if you want to make this Wendy centric, then do a six part Wendy series. Yeah. Give us her point of view. Give us Hook's point of view. It doesn't need to be a live-action remake of Peter Pan, but because Disney is just going to keep doing it, they obviously looked at this and said, it's not going to make us a billion dollars at the box office, so we're just going to put it on Disney+. Plus." This is the same thing that happened with a handful of Pixar films, and at the time, you sat there and said, oh, well, pandemic. Okay, guess what? It's 2023. Pandemic's over, folks. It's done. But what we know for a fact is that Disney needs box office revenue. It's Peter Pan. And you're giving up box office revenue. I also think that this is trying to send a message because the subscribers dropped. I think they are trying to put it out there that, oh, no, there are things that are on Disney Plus that you won't be able to find anywhere else. I really don't think that by putting this movie on Disney Plus, I don't think that's going to save your subscribers. Because of all the reasons we talked about before, you're not just sitting at home all of the time. And because everybody's got a streaming service, you now have to be very particular with where you spend your entertainment money. Right. To me, you need to put these in movie theaters. Get your box office revenue. Make as much money as you can on the box office. And then, instead of people spending... $30 on a Blu-ray when there's three or four good movies that came out that year, then they're more inclined to sign up for Disney Plus because now you've got access to the entire library. So that 90 bucks you would have spent on three movies, now over the course of a year, you get everything plus Mandalorian and all the stuff they're doing for Marvel on television, WandaVision, right? Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Hawkeye, everything. And then you get all the Marvel movies. You're going to get Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which is probably going to be on Disney Plus within the next month because it dropped like a rock at the box office. But I, I just feel like the fact that you're taking Peter Pan and you're putting it straight to Disney Plus, that tells me that they have no faith in it. Because if they had faith that it was a good movie that people wanted to see, that people weren't tired of in terms of live action remakes that they invested money into, that they thought they could make money off of, it would go to the box office. I think this is Disney's rationale. If it doesn't make a billion dollars, it's going to Disney+. Plus. You know, it's really interesting, too. I was also thinking that perhaps this was a way of appeasing the investors. Investors Day is uh, coming up on April 3rd, so it's before the release of this film. Maybe, but I, I just, I don't know. There's some, something about this, to me, just reads that people are tired of live-action remakes And for some reason or the next, instead of putting that money into developing new stories, developing new characters, there's going to be like, well, hell with it. Here, here's Lilo and Stitch. We don't care if you don't want it. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, 
eventually something's got to give. And we've been saying for a long time, there's live action burnout. And I just don't understand why. Like, these these projects are in development already. I get it. You've already spent money developing. you spent money on cast. But at this point, why not just come out and say, yeah, you know, we've got Peter Pan and Wendy, and we have the Cruella sequel. But after that, uh, we're going to take a break, and we're going to introduce some new characters and new stuff. No, they're, they're still looking to announce these live-action projects that nobody wants to see. So it's like, why are you doing it anyway? Do you get what I'm saying? Right. No, and at this point, it's like... They've announced Frozen 3. Are you going to tell me that we've gone through the entire Disney catalog and remade so many live action films? We're going to get the third sequel to Frozen and then they're going to announce a live action remake for it. Exactly. It's too much. We want to know what you have to say about the Peter Pan and Wendy trailer. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Be sure to follow us on that social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. You've got that email address, monorealradio at gmail.com, and for links to everything related to the show. It is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.